Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This interview is brought to you by Cambridge University Press. Please visit Cambridge at www.cambridge.org. There you can find their entire catalog of books. And, of course, you can buy them there as well. So please visit the press today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the Internet looking for interesting books. And this week I'm very pleased to say we have John Brook on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, Climate Change and the Course of Global History, A Rough Journey. I was telling John before the interview that I've done a little research in what I would call big history. I think he'll call it big history, too. And this is a wonderful contribution to big history, and I really look forward to talking to John about it. So let me say welcome to the show, John. Thank you, Marshall. Um, uh, 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 glad to be here. Great. So could you kick the interview off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Uh, well, very briefly, I am an historian, uh, licensed in American history, but uh, <laughs> background occupation and, and, uh, and now occupation, a, a global historian. I work at Ohio State University. Mm-hmm. Yeah, did they teach you the secret handshake when they licensed you? Uh, pretty much, right. <laughs> I didn't ever get the secret handshake. As um, go Buckeyes, though. Uh, as someone who t- used to teach at Iowa, I can't, you know, that's not so good. So, in any event, <laughs> um, so in any event, would you tell us why you wrote Climate Change in the Course of Global History, A Rough Journey? Well, this, this is a, a long story. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, uh, I mean, it does go back to my, to, um, I, I recently read my, my application to graduate school, which I wrote in uh, fall, winter of 75, 70, uh, 1975, and um I was applying to an American history program at Penn, and I was thinking in global terms. And um, when I got to Penn, I was told, look, just put that stuff in the background. We're doing American history here. And that was fine, you know. So I, I, um, I um, dutifully and, and actually quite joyfully um, worked in the vineyards of American history, wrote a couple books. And at, at that point, having finished my second book, um, decided, eh, you know, I think I'll – I'll go back to I'll go back to my environmental history interests and my current um, uh, employer at Tufts University was looking for someone they were offering um, uh, they're looking for people to teach in environmental studies so I launched a course in 19 uh, did a lot of research summer of 93 and then in the uh, 94 95 academic year started a course in global environmental history and basically I thought all right I'm going to teach one course and it's not going to be American, uh, the American, the classic American environmental history, which is a great course. But I just felt we have one globe and you know one humanity and uh, one big history, and I want to I want to teach it all together. Um, the deep background on this is I did a um, double major at Cornell in history and anthropology and archaeology. Um, in 1974, 40 years ago this summer, very bizarre to think it's so long ago. I worked the uh, summer on archaeological site on the Mesolithic, which is you know pre-agriculture in Holland, uh, for all summer long, and and um, and I had this so I had this background in prehistory back into the Paleolithic, so I I could handle the, the big time scales that are involved here. So this course, uh, this course evolved out of that background interest, and then uh, around 2005, I started thinking about uh, pretty seriously about, about writing a book, mm. and the book evolved from there. And uh, wrote a draft by uh, 2009, and then revised it, revised it, revised it, and uh, now it's now it's before you. Well, you're too modest. Perhaps we should say something about the historiographical or even political climate of this book about climate change obviously yeah, it's very yeah, yeah. um 
it's very topical at the moment. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, in the you know, it's, it's interesting to think of how that unfolded in, in my own thinking. Um, I mean, I was obviously concerned about it, and, and uh, in the backdrop, um, the backdrop of when I actually started working on the course. I uh, was thinking about it in the late 80s, um, and, and I can still remember the Hanson, the James Hansen uh, testified in Congress in 1988, and then the uh, the idea that that greenhouse gases were heating the atmosphere was uh, confirmed through the back door by the cooling effect of Mount Pinatubo explosions in uh, 1993. So obviously, um, I've had a you know, long-term exposure to and involvement in the uh, science and, and politics of climate change. Um, I didn't have as as uh, detailed an understanding of it as I do now. I have to say, uh, quite bluntly, writing this book was um, I was gradually beginning to turn the corner to the interpretation I build in this book. Which is, in essence, that um, not only is climate change obviously incredibly important, but and not only have there been climate change patterns in the past, um, but they have shaped the course and trajectory of human history. Um, human history is not isolated from its natural environment, and for most of human history, that means um, that. Uh, we have responded to and acted within the framework of natural events. Now, and now is an incredibly short period of time, the last 100 years or so, 140 years perhaps, uh, we are actively, very actively shaping that uh, Earth system environment, that atmospheric environment, and uh, that process has been accelerating massively um, since literally when I was born. I I was, uh, keep talking about the uh, in my classes. I talk about the micro events of of the last uh, 60 years. When uh, because uh, in 1958 uh, the the first the first uh, measurements were taken on Mount Loa of annual changes in CO2 in the atmosphere, uh, and the, that those levels have increased. Uh, more since 1958 than they had since the 1870s. Uh, so the last, the last, uh, last 50 years, um, 55 years, uh, the level of atmospheric CO2 has um, just leapt enormously. So we're scraping, you know, we're at 400 probably uh, sometime. Um, up right about now, I suspect that if we went to the Mount site, I haven't looked at it in the last couple of days, but uh, we should be, you know, at the 402 uh, weekly level because uh, that's what happened last year. Uh, no reason to think we aren't there now. Uh, and what does that mean? 402 parts per million, which I must admit I just pulled that out of the sky. Um, <laughs> but that's basically what what things were, uh, you know, the week of May 26. Eighth um, in 2013, um, the background numbers for the post-glacial period, the last 10,000 years, oscillating around 280 parts per million. And since uh, literally since 1958, we have jumped from about 315 uh, to 400. Um, and uh, the pre- there had been a slight expansion before that, but really the the impact of what's happened in the last uh, 50, 60 years is really very stunning. Mm-hmm. So let's do what historians do best and put some of that in perspective. Your, your book begins an extraordinarily long right. time ago. So uh, the universe, I think, is 13.8 billion years old, and the Earth is about 5 million years old, if I recall correctly, 4.8, something like that. Four, billion, yeah, billion yeah it's probably maybe changed, but I would say 4.56 or something like that. Don't really know, years old, right? Right. right? And yeah. then, and then Earth is a. I mean, and then life is about four billion years old. Something I'm, of that. I'm order, guessing yeah. here. Really. Yeah, I don't and, and they well. are guessing too. That you know, there's many scenarios, and the latest scenarios really are for relatively early emergence of life and and frequent extinct, frequent uh, you know uh, extinctions um, until it finally finally locked in. Mm-hmm. And um, so yes, obviously enormous time frame. Uh, I mean that's part of the part of the the, the the lesson of the book and lesson of what I try to the way I try to teach it is I teach the entire thing and I'm afraid my poor students it is it is a little exhausting but the the logic to this is to is to see how microscopic our place is in that 
enormous history. And in fact, that this the Earth has gone through these incredible environmental uh, crises and transitions that are purely natural. Um, and um, we are when we talk about reaching 400 parts per million. Um, in CO2 in the atmosphere, that level has not been seen in the atmosphere um, 10 to 38 million years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, you know, however you want to parse it, is it in the Miocene or is it in the Oligocene? But we're talking about climbing back up an enormous cycle that leads us back to the, literally back to the dinosaurs. The dinosaurs, the peak of the uh, last great greenhouse super cycle that there have been three in the last, you know, 600 million years. Um, uh, the peak of the last greenhouse super cycle, there were dinosaurs roaming the Earth to the North Pole, um, and the parts per the the were you know somewhere between a thousand and two thousand parts per million in the atmosphere. We have never even vaguely, you know, we have lived we we evolved in a totally different environment. We evolved in increasingly cooler and. Um, uh, we might say cleaner greenhouse, greenhouse gas environment, and we're rapidly uh, moving toward. When you talk about doubling and quadrupling scenarios of releasing greenhouse gases suddenly um, from 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 the Arctic, um, uh, caused by the accelerating pressure of uh, fossil fuel emissions, um, you know, we're talking about a shift, a sudden, abrupt transition to conditions that have not been seen in you know tens and tens of millions of years uh, and that could happen in a century and now that's that's abrupt by geological scales it might even happen much more abruptly um, and that's that's the that's the problem people now are talking about about you know the, the have been talking for, for for years about the possibility of a very abrupt shifts uh, taking you know less than a lifetime mm-hmm. and um, and the Arctic ice pattern is looking somewhat like that. I mean, they predicted Arctic ice melting in a long curve that was quite dramatic, but it, it stretched out into the 21st century. Well, that the the actual melt off is is moving much much faster than they expected, and the the actual measured uh, decline of Arctic ice um, is uh, uh, you know fundamentally dramatic, and that's that's. You know, that is a is 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 unprecedented for. Um, uh, I mean, the Arctic has been has been glaciated for uh, since 2.5 million years ago. Began to began to glaciate. Uh, we haven't had a totally you know deglaciated Arctic um, for you know, <laughs> for over over you know probably over two million years. Um, and uh, you know. Keep in mind, the species, modern, anatomically modern humans, are only 200,000 years old. Um, so, um, you know, our, when we think about history, we think about what happened, um, you know, what happened uh, in World War II. We worry about what happened in World War One. We worry about the, you know, the, the shape of the Industrial Revolution. We worry about what, you know, the cause of the Civil War, the cause of the American Revolution. But this is, this is, these are incredibly important political events of the last you know, eight to ten generations. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about um, timescales that take us back uh, 500 to 1500 to two, three, four thousand generations, um, obviously more. Um, and uh, um, but in terms of you know, Earth systems, we live in an Earth system, and and it it has its chronologies, and we have we have ours, and that's part of the disjunction in the current debate, which is people can't really imagine these huge systems shifting that rapidly. And the lesson of the last 30 years in climate science is that these systems do shift that radically, that rapidly, and nobody wants to hear that. Mm-hmm. And I, I personally don't really blame them. Who wants, <laughs> who wants to deal with you know a fundamentally changed world? Nobody really wants it. I mean, nobody really wants it. Nobody wants it. You know, we we can, nobody wants to even think about it. But um, and certainly not the scientists who, who discovered it. But the reality is. 
it is out there, and it's not it's not uh, something that's always made up, um, and uh, um, uh, it's not an unnatural reaction for the for the first timer coming to the material to be utterly frightened by by the the, the specter of what could possibly happen. Mm-hmm. So let's tell a little bit of the story. Why don't we start with the moment at which, um, well, the conditions under which life appeared on Earth. The, the thesis of the book, if I could say most generally, is, is that climate, broadly construed, that is the temperature and the condition of the atmosphere, what's in it, mm-hmm. uh, that sort of thing, the amount of water uh, available, um, you know, uh, methane in the air and oxygen in the air, mm-hmm. CO2 in the air. Th- this has had a very important uh, impact on uh, what forms of life evolved, how they evolved, and when they evolved. So um, it's, it's this, this is really the sort of causal moment in the book. So can we begin by talking about you know, the origin of life? Right. Well, we can. Yeah, I, I must admit, I, don't, I, mean, I do talk about it, but I don't spend a huge amount of time on it. Um, I mean, the origins of life... Um, uh, are a matter of, of a debate that I must admit I don't want to get too, <laughs> too, too far into because, because it's a, it's, it's a, a complex, uh, and shifting battlefield. Um, but what, what is, what is key is, is the, um, um, uh, is the, what I, what I like to focus on are the, the wider, what I like to call earth system context of, um, not just the the origins of life um, in its uh, you know, prokaryote forms, but uh, which you know which are which are the things that are you know, fundamentally uh, you know obviously that is incredibly important. Though some people argue that you know some of those prokaryote forms were potentially you know emerging on other planets, and it's not really that dramatic that they happen. What what is dramatic is that the Earth system developed um, uh, its own. Its own structure and history. So, the Earth, if we do a transect of the Earth, it looks internally different from Mars and Venus, uh, because we developed a uh, an active living Earth. Uh, in other words, the the outer and the, the driver to this is a is a very simple process, which it, it's simple when you when you kind of put your head around it, which is that in the in the outer core of the the molten outer core. There is this constant process that's been happening since the beginning of the Earth, which is the sorting out of the of the elements. And basically, very simply, heavy stuff falls down and light stuff comes up. And so we have a heavily we have this iron nickel core, and this can, this process of differentiation of light and heavy elements means that there's a you know, we developed a crust on the, on the edges of the Earth. We developed an atmosphere around the outside of the Earth, and then a convection current began to develop mm-hmm. inside of that that outer core, and that drives enormous. Uh, that is the life of the planet, and in it in the in the longest terms. And and as that system matured, um, it created contexts in which uh, tech, in, in which tectonic processes, meaning continents, uh, began to develop and then be subducted and. And um, so the, the uh, what I find dramatic is is how these you know the debates about how these processes line up um, life evolving in um, um, and shifting rapidly from um, essentially uh, from so-called uh, prokaryote to eukaryote forms, um, much more silly complex forms, um, as the um, in the context of a dramatic, um, literally events in in the Earth system as as atmosphere as, as atmosphere. Um, well, let's, let's first first focus on on the the uh, the, uh, the 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 tectonic sort of uh, processes. Those mm-hmm. the first eruption of those processes. And really, you know, continental formations uh, may have set the stage and created the context in which this relatively rapid transition of from prokaryotes to eukaryotes evolved, and then that itself may have contributed to this debates about that. How much did the emergence of um, uh, oxygen-producing life forms uh, change the atmosphere itself? Mm-hmm. So, and and they talk about great oxidation moments. Uh, which are taking millions of years, but great oxidation shifts, um, and they occur at either end of 
uh, the Proterozoic. So we have a Paleoproterozoic crisis and a Neoproterozoic crisis. And in between a fairly, you know, roughly billion, billion and a half years of stability with fairly simple life forms. Um, and then the, the, uh, what I find most dramatic is, is that, uh, is that Neoproterozoic crisis in which, um, uh, a whiplash of tectonic, uh, uh, and, you know, Earth system, uh, geological forces interacting with the atmosphere, um, interacting with the rapidly evolving biology, um, um, seems to put the Earth through a series of intense glaciation um, uh, episodes called the Snowball Earth periods uh, when. The stresses of that of this whiplash between very warm and very cold um, conditions over several um, several million several tens of millions of years uh, led to the rise of not just multicellular forms but you know uh, chordates and um, uh, complex life forms that um, visible life forms. Um, Stephen Jay Gould uh, called the Tofoka wrote a book years ago called the Burgess Jail about the complex life forms that emerged during this Cambrian period um, and a you know, great event-based transition. So one of the things that I struck me as I as I uh, became more you know kind of retooled uh, 20, 20 years ago in um, geology and biology was that there were you could either look at the evolution of life as a slow mechanistic process, um, you know, survival of fittest, essentially a, a mathematical process by which some random events, random processes unfolded through time and, and there wasn't much pattern to it. Or it was just a smooth, a smooth, uh, continuous pattern. Or alternatively, uh, and this was, I mean, I should credit where credit due, uh, Stephen Jay Gould and Niles Eldridge, um, proposed a model in the late 70s of punctuated change. Mm-hmm. That, uh, great events in, dramatic events in the Earth system drove, um, accelerations of evolution. And, uh, and very broadly, this is the, ex- the accepted model these days that, mm-hmm. um, um, that uh, that there's a very close connection between the evolution of life as we know it and um, the evolution of the planet, uh, the history, the specific history of the planet, and that, that as we can talk about the American Revolution and the Civil War and World War One, World War Two, and the rise of parties as you know events in American history, uh, but we can also talk about events in Earth history that matter. We all should know about them, and two of them are the Paleoproterozoic crisis and the Neoproterozoic crisis, um, as well as the arts of life during the um, Hadean uh, Archean transition. Mm-hmm. Well, let's jump forward a little bit and talk about uh, the emergence of humans or humanoids yeah. or hominins or whatever we might call them. Uh, How does the uh, climate play into that? That's about 200,000 years ago we get uh, modern humans or behaviorally modern humans, I guess. Well, yeah, I mean, the the other way to look at that is... is, um, is to set, you know, ask ourselves, how did we evolve? And, 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 um, uh, Stanley Ambrose wrote a book called, uh, Children of the Ice Age, which, um, about the, about, um, the emergence of humanity, um, over the course of the Miocene, the Pliocene, and the Pleistocene, which, which metaphorically is a wonderful image, and it, it is a wonderful image. And, and the, the, the backdrop to that is that we, we are now in, in geological time, in an ice house condition and um, there have been uh, we are now in the uh, the Cenozoic ice house there was a uh, uh, essentially a, 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 a Mesozoic a Paleozoic Mesozoic ice house and then there were the ice houses of the the, the end of the the uh, Paleoproterozoic um, the, the yeah the Paleo Paleozoic um, my point being broadly that we are a product of of a long-term cooling process unfolding over since about you know it probably began before 65 million years ago um, and has been unfolding. You know, it, 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 it's part of an internal cycle to the to the to the Earth system. Um, certainly accelerated by various processes, um, but uh, the last the, the the rise of humanity can be. Uh, Broadly patterned, it's patterned by um, very, very significant events in the um, 
this long-term cooling that's been unfolding over these millions of years. So we don't get into mammalian evolution, but at all, this whole cooling process has led to the rise of mammals uh, and other aspects of, of the modern biosphere that we take for granted. And then we came along in... Um, uh, under you know certain specific pressures in Eastern Africa um, during the uh, the Miocene, Pliocene, and Pleistocene, um, and uh, so benchmarks um, benchmark points being you know the onset of of um, uh, Arctic glaciation among others um, at 2.5 million probably led to to the the um, uh, in drought conditions in Eastern Africa, acceleration of need for, um, uh, for uh, habitat stress and some kind of adaptive adaptive reaction. And one of those adaptive reactions was proto you know, pre-human populations beginning to use tools more effectively and to uh, scavenge scavenge. Uh, uh, kill sites where uh, where big cats, lions, have killed killed uh, large large animals out on the on the on the, on the savanna and get fat for their children. Brain size expanded, <laughs> uh, and um, and we get smarter, small hobbit-like uh, uh, so-called Homo habilis emerging out of that. Um, and you know, a great transition unfolding. You know, whether or not this has a climate effect now or not, that's unquestioned, unknown. But uh, uh, you know, the, the emergence of fire, uh, controlled fire, now dated to about a million years ago from a site in South Africa, a major transition, uh, which leads to you know, fundamentally um, uh, the modern human physique of of a relatively large head and a relatively small stomach. Uh, we don't have a huge stomach to, to because we, we pre-digest our food. We cook it, um, and that's been going on for a million years. And then the specifics of modern human, modern human emergence out of, you know, over the course of, uh, you know, from 2.5 or from 5 million, uh, if you want to go back to Australopithecus, um, Specific climate pressures uh, in Eastern Africa driving uh, adaptive change and increasingly um, uh, change that led to an increasingly um, uh, generalist approach. Essentially, beginning to under under to, to rather than being specifically committed to one strategy, being able to figure out different strategies to make essentially to make a living, to survive, to survive, and to to reproduce. Um, but it looks pretty clear that there were, if we think about the origins of modern humanity, as you just you, you were asking about two hundred thousand years ago, very very intense droughts in eastern Africa, leading to very small bottlenecks of human population out of which in in in, in which with very reduced populations particular genetic traits uh, spread very fast and in the wake of these mega droughts we have the first evidence of anatomically modern humans um, in eastern Africa at um, at 190 and 160 um, in uh, the earliest modern human um, sites in Ethiopia uh, which is a very dramatic moment Mm-hmm. Well, let's jump forward again, and our time periods are getting smaller and smaller. As yeah. I'm sure the <laughs> listener will notice things are speeding up. So let's jump forward again to uh, what I think is the most, uh, I don't know what's the most interesting, but I, I was going to use the word confused because we don't exactly know what's going on, and there's been a lot of scholarly attention to it. That is the uh, origin of, um, and I don't even know what to call it, there's so much debate going on, sedentism, uh, agriculture, uh, horticulture, right. uh, I don't know, cities, you pick one. <laughs> well, you know, that's the, therein lies, you know, it's pretty clear that, you know, you know, agriculture was, it's probably, it's probable that agriculture was um, pretty much impossible during the Ice Ages. When you have CO2 down there, at, during the Ice Ages, CO2 was about 180, and there is a pretty good 180 parts per million and a, a pretty good argument to be made that those conditions, um, it's, people have done experiments, um, simply agriculture was impossible. What is striking is how rapidly agriculture begins to develop um, as soon as the conditions shift. And 
so we have a combination during the last warm up, which happened. Um, first, we have a little. We have we have a brief uh, kind of uh, period of warmth that lasts about a thousand years, and then a cold a thousand years of called the Younger Dryas, where things suddenly cool down again, caused by the impact of fresh water into the North Atlantic, stopping stopping uh, great uh, ocean currents and shutting the whole system down again. You have to think of the system of warmth that's driven by massive ocean currents as well as by, by atmospherics. And the, 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 the ocean currents stopped suddenly and because of fresh water suddenly being dropped out of the melting glaciers into the North Atlantic. And you know, it took about a thousand years to recover. But as that, as that transition, uh, as, as things warm up fairly rapidly, about 9600 BC, um, we then get movement toward agriculture in particular locations and in, under what circumstances. That's therein lies the problem. It's probable that as soon as things warm up, people tend to settle in, even without agriculture. They simply settle into. Um, Places with high biomass productivity, where the particularly regions that are swampy and wet that produce a lot of a lot of good things to eat, and uh, this is called the Mesolithic. Um, this is a period where they are, uh, and a lot of Mesolithic societies survived to the recent past. And basic societies that were other societies that were not farming. Um, those societies were, uh, in many cases, actually sedentary because they had no need to move, or they moved much less than we expect them. That we thought they might, uh, they might move, from, you know, seasonally in a in a small uh, tribal range. Um, <clears throat> uh, and the transition to to full scale agriculture is something that that really does take by human history time perspective you know, quite a bit of time it takes about 4 or 5000 years and even in the places where it moves most rapidly which is in china and in uh southwest asia meaning the fertile crescent uh, what is now syria iraq and um israel and lebanon um, and uh, you know, it's, it is a complex story. It's not a simple story, but it's one that that, that really has two phases. One, the the, the um, experimentation with horticulture uh, by in a society that more uh, you know, increasing dependence on horticulture, particularly involving women's labor. It looks pretty clear that women were doing that work and men were still hunting and herding. Um, and then a transition to full-scale, what we call traditional peasant agriculture, sometime in the last, uh, sometime between, say, uh, 6,000 B.C. and 4,000 B.C. in both China and in Southwest Asia. Um, and uh, um, by, by 4,000, 3,000 B.C., U.S. societies that are, um, we could more or less handle. I mean, they would be pretty strange if we dropped into them, but anybody who's kind of got a back understanding of, you know, people live in, in mud-walled mud cities and mud-walled mud -walled villages, and they use cattle for various things, and, and there's no electricity. <laughs> um, you know, conditions like this were not, uh, existed in the 20th century. Um, uh, it wouldn't be impossible to live in these, in these contexts. Um, uh, and the climate context for that really is, is one, the, warm, the, the warmer conditions, but two, what I stress in the middle part of my book is not just that the Holocene, the last, which is the last 10,000 years, has been a warm period, but it has had a pattern to it. And so much of my story, uh, my analysis, is about the pattern of climate change since the end of the Ice Ages. Um, that is nowhere near as deep as that as the patterns of the of the Pleistocene and of the grand structures of Earth history running back to the origins um, of of the Earth. But but it has a pattern, and those patterns have sh affected the the health and the welfare of uh, human human societies. Um, uh, as they become more and more dependent on agriculture and become more and more concentrated in uh, the exciting places like cities, uh, cities are fun places to live, but they're also uh, they they have an environmental footprint, uh, and they're also dangerous places because people tend to get sick there uh, in the in the not so distant past. So. Um, 
much of the book is focused on the the uh, the shape of climate change um, in um, a fairly specific century by century analysis um, for, uh, to argue that there that it has a pattern and those patterns um, relate to periods of of fluorescence and periods of crisis in uh, the history of agricultural societies over the last eight to 9,000 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, let's uh, talk a little bit about that pattern. I mean, I should also say for uh, the careful listener, we'll obviously have noted that we have now crossed the boundary into uh, what historians would call historical time because now right. we have written right. documents. This is usually right. where uh, your uh, Western and Eastern Civ uh, classes will begin. Right. Um, and so we're adding a new layer on those and trying to explain some of what we see in the record. Um, so there'll be, actually, we can talk about familiar historical events now, not only the rise of cities in the Near East, but, uh, you know, actual empires, the, the, so the, the Greek Golden Age and then the mm-hmm. Romans, so on and so forth. I'm sorry to be so Western centric, but go ahead and talk about that pattern and uh, take us through that. Right. It's really quite a short period. Um, yeah, so so yeah. we can we can actually sensibly speak about it. It's, right. a, it's a quite a short period of, of three or four thousand years. So go ahead. Right. Yeah. Well, it, it's it's sometimes easier to do this visually, but <laughs> yeah. we can't. But in, in essence, we have to think of of the last four to five thousand years as already a cooler period than what had occurred previous to that. The, the period from from uh, you know, the sun warm up. And actually, very warm, very warm, beneficent climates, um, much, much warmer than they are now, running from, uh, you know, say, 8500 BC to about 4000 BC. And that's called the early Holocene. We live, uh, then there was a mid Holocene crisis, and then we live in broadly the late Holocene. And during that, during that, during, uh, over the last, uh, so over the last 5,000 years, we can describe. From um, the data produced by the climate scientists, um, we can describe visually and on paper um, the a pattern that roughly unfolds over 2,200 years. They're called Hallstatt solar minima, um, and so these Hallstatt solar minima, which broadly means the sun has a has an oscillation to it, and so it, it's solar, solar solar shifts are extremely important. And the the um, there is a active analysis of how the solar output has 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 evolved over the last ten thousand years. Um, and once we get cool enough for those solar solar influences to become significant, happening around five thousand years ago, um, they determine the course and pulse of of human human welfare, really. So, okay, when did these happen? One of them was one of these Hallstatt uh, uh, minima occurred around 4,000 to 3,000 BC. Then we jump forward to about 1,200 to about 800 BC. And today, just to, today is on May 28th. Today, New York Times had an editorial about um, about the uh, the crisis of. Uh, the Bronze Age, uh, 1200 BC, uh, which was the onset of a of a Hallstatt solar minima period that lasted for four or five hundred years. So, so we have two there, and then we have the third one happened in relatively recent time. It's called the Little Ice Age, and it began. Uh, the first hints of it were around 1260, 1275 AD. Um, it it um, reached its depths um, around. 15, it suddenly got much, much severe around 1560, uh, and all during the 17th century, we have historically low periods, including the so-called Maunder Minimum of the late 17th century, when people were beginning to look at the sun with telescopes and burn their eyes, and, um, <laughs> and they started looking at the sun, and slowly they started seeing sunspots, and um, uh, there hadn't been any. And they can they started counting sunspots and realized they and, and over time well Mr. Maunder in, in the uh, in the uh, about forty years ago realized that they were what they had seen was a minimum when there had been no sunspots and it was uh, the so the solar activity was solar flares were very low and solar activity was very low thus correlating with an extremely cold period mm-hmm. so 
you know, so we have the solar patterns, and then we have the, the, the effects on Earth. And one of the most dramatic of them is something called the Siberian High. Uh, and that Siberian High pattern um, produces a signature in the um, Greenland ice cores of Asian dust, basically a very particular kind of sulfur uh, with a particular kind of chemical signature um, that um, you know, oscillates and you know, ripples along, and then it, every r- lining up with the Hallstatt's uh, goes into these extreme patterns, which suggest extreme cold, stormy weather in the northern hemisphere. Uh, these are described as what they, way they would influence, say, the Mediterranean or China would be, or Japan, intense winter polar outbursts. Um, uh, and, and, you know, I wouldn't want to call reference to the vortex events of the last year, which are minimal compared to what these things were like. Um, and actually, in the, in the last phase of the Little Ice Age, the French historians have found that they can go through journals and actually map these solar outbursts, these uh, Siberian high outbursts um, on the landscape uh, from journal diaries of priests writing about cold, cold, snow events in southern France uh, and track them day by day. And these things line up exactly to the year with the um, annual data from the Greenland ice cores. Mm. So, um, so really, you know, you've got some amazing correlation. So broadly speaking, the pattern is uh, if we just look at, say, the last um, uh, 3,000 years, we came out of the uh, Siberian high, uh, desperate cold drought circumstances of that uh, late Bronze Age Hallstatt, which basically destroyed the Bronze Age. This is the point of the editorial today, um, that the Bronze Age was, was destroyed by, by uh, Bronze Age, both in, you know, both in, um, uh, well, the Bronze Age in, 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 in the Mediterranean world and, and having global effects. I mean, you can see these patterns everywhere. Um, um, because the climate system, which again, it's hard to describe um, uh, by, on the telephone, but the knee bone is connected to the thigh bone. Uh, a cold <laughs> north, a cold north, a cold north means droughts in India and southwest southern Asia, and it means El Nino storminess on the west coast of of the Americas. So there, there, there literally is, there is a system. It all fits together. And um, so broadly speaking, over the last 5,000 years, we've had this oscillation between either a warm north and good monsoons in India and China um, and the pretty dry uh, Americas, um, or um, the reverse, uh, very cold north, uh, not you know, Pleistocene cold, but cold, uh, little ice age cold, um, and um, uh, droughts in India, droughts in um, on the eastern end of what's called the El Nino Southern Oscillation Band around the Coast Pacific, um, and strong, strong El Nino storminess and floods and disaster in um, in and, uh, oscillating with intense droughts. I mean, what variation in El Nino gets extreme, and so South America went through intense drought and flood conditions, oscillating wildly during these Hallstatt periods. Um, so that's the, you know that's the background. We we are in an optimum. We are in an optimum where we are not in a Hallstatt minimum. We've just we came out of one probably the last you know the last uh, there's something called the Dalton minimum which happened around 1810 to 1820. Uh, that's the last of the Little Ice Age minima. Uh, kind of uh, a last uh, horn blowing of that of that cycle in the soul in, in, in the in, internal workings of the sun, um, which you know created cold conditions um, in the turn of the, the turn of the, the early 19th century. But since then, solar solar influence has been higher uh, to some degree. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's higher. And um, we, we're in an optimum, not unlike the Roman Empire and the Han Empire were in an optimum. I mean, really simply, the Roman Empire is bracketed by 
um, the great ages of empire in both um, the Mediterranean, Southeast Asian world, and uh, the uh, and in the Han, in Han China is distinctly bracketed by um, the optimum conditions of and roughly 200 BC to 280, um, and then what what you have is a, a, a secondary pattern. In between these grand minima, there are secondary minima, and one of them shaped the dark ages of uh, this broadly 400, 450 AD to about 900 AD of a of a, a, a moderately cold period, and that. It's there's new there's all sorts of consensus emerging that that had a decisive effect on the decline of the Roman Empire. Broadly, the shift toward colder temperatures and uh, wetter conditions in in um, uh, broadly in Europe undermined the wheat economy that underlay the wheat wine oil economy that underwrote the Roman Empire. Uh, you couldn't couldn't grow the stuff as far north as you could and as had before, and it undermined the economic basis of of the of the um, the outer edges of the empire, mm-hmm. um, and and then if you go to China, China has a very China has a very complicated climate history, um, which is is uh, doesn't quite fit exactly this model, but because of the influence, there's a complication of how the monsoons are shaped by both the Indian Ocean and the Siberian High and, and events in, in the North Pacific. But what is pretty clear and really quite amazing is. Every single dynastic crisis in Chinese history, as far back as you want to go, is shaped by a, can be aligned with a dramatic drop crisis in the climate. It doesn't mean that every climate drop caused a crisis in an imperial crisis in China, but but every imperial crisis is connected to a climate crisis. Yeah, yeah. And uh, very simply, the mandate heaven is withdrawn. The uh, the, uh, the crops fail. The drought or floods uh, uh, if uh, impact crops. Crops fail. People get hungry. People start to uh, the brigands emerge, um, and um, and the dynasty falls. Um, and every now and then, uh, in the in the in the Middle Ages, the the Mongols came out of came out of the north. Mm-hmm. Um, and the nomads came out of the north and. Uh, Created some some very dramatic, uh, specific events in, in China's incredible history. Mm-hmm. I know historians don't like to make predictions, or as a professor of mine used to say, don't like to make predictions, especially about the future. Especially, <laughs> especially about the future. We only predict about the past, right? <laughs> um, so, so uh, this cycle is coming back around. Yeah. Yes, it's coming back around. Um, when do, when when is it scheduled to arrive? Well, you know, the 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 uh the Hallstatt super minima is well beyond our worries. You know, it it's if we it's that this the um uh the Hallstatt pattern uh, if it still is if yeah, if we haven't overwhelmed it by our own mm-hmm. I mean it's 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 highly likely uh that we've overwhelmed Natural, the natural signal um, by because uh, you have to imagine a very warm period in the early Holocene, 9000 BC to about 6000 BC. Solar influence didn't matter as much. It had to do with how the Earth was tilted toward the toward the sun, and it created a very warm northern hemisphere. And solar influences are you know they're there, but they're not significant. Once you get once orbital structure basically the the orbital when i talk about orbital structure that means the way the earth is oriented toward the sun either by its tilt or by its the shape of the orbit um, or by the where the seasons are in a cycle the seasons shift around the orbit so there these are called the milankovitch uh, cycles and uh, they operate on different periodicities and the one that matters for us is precession and we have been you know, moving toward a cooler pattern that that allowed these solar cycles to have an effect, starting around five, you know six five thousand years ago. So I my argue, my position would be this: that we are creating the natural cycles will continue; they'll keep rolling around, but we are doing to the climate 
um, uh, we are changing the climate system. So those natural signals may not have the same effects that they would have in the past since we put, um, you know, we doubled, well, we haven't quite doubled the CO2 in the atmosphere quite yet, but we are moving toward it. Um, we have increased it by a third. We've increased the pressure on the system, and we certainly have have um, moved global temperatures higher and changed, you know, changed the structure of, of, uh, of the climate system. I mean, we, what we're dealing with right now in terms of prediction, how do we predict the future, um, we're dealing with a, a natural system that has been perturbed, that has been altered. And so uh, that complicates predictions. So, so are, is the cycle coming around? The next Halstead is probably going to come, or what shall we say, probably in about, um, uh, let's do the math here, uh, well, to, we'll say 2,000 years from 1,700, so 2,700. I'm not too worried about, about um, is that right, 2,700? No, uh, no, that's not even right. That's uh, uh, from 1700 to 3700. 3700, yeah. 3700. Not, not something to worry about. Um, the intermediate half cycle, again, nothing really to worry about. But there's plenty of, you know, there's, you know there are predictions. There is a debate going on now about what smaller scale solar minimum might evolve. They're trying to study the last, you know, what they can of how, how the chemistry of the, the uh, solar flares hitting, um, hitting essentially hitting the atmosphere and being deposited into the glaciers. That chemistry, they study that chemistry through time and they try to, they try to analyze the cycle pattern. And so they're trying to, they're trying to predict what will happen in the next 100 to 200 years. There is a prediction that we might have a solar cycle pattern that isn't a grand pattern, but it would be a, a cooler pattern. Um, and the, it's a prediction uh, that, some, that, in the next, uh, that sometime in the next century we would have a respite from um, the pressures we're putting on the system. Um, but on the other hand, it may be that that signal doesn't even doesn't even register because we put we've changed the chemistry of the atmosphere so much uh, in the last 170 years, 140 years since I like to benchmark it at 1870, mm-hmm. um, and that's the point of massive transition, total mm-hmm. fundamental fundamental transition. The the emissions numbers just leap off the charts. So yes, there's an industrial revolution before that, but. <laughs> Uh, it's nothing like it doesn't have the the um, the uh, fossil fuel impacts that we start to get from the 1870s forward. Um, so 140 years of of really dramatic change, and we don't know where we are. That's that's the fundamental problem. Um, and so what the climate scientists have been trying to do, generating amazing data for me then to use for another purpose to interpret the human past. Um, they have been trying to figure out how we can map what the natural system is to figure out how far we have gone from the natural system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If I could ask a quick question about the sure. historian's contribution to the climate change debate. And uh, we can take um, ice core samples, and we can find out how much CO2 was in the air 100, 200, 300, 400 years ago, and we see this big spike starting mm-hmm. mid-19th century. Um, that, does that correspond to anything we see in the historical record in terms of a change of fuel or an increase in the amount of fuel or increase in the yeah. consumption of fuel or can it be tracked in that way? You know, in a way, right. for example, you could today say, well, there are this, there were this many cars in 1960 and there are this many cars today. And you see that tracks very nicely with the increase in CO2. So is there anything from the 19th century that we can point to? Well, say, yeah, I mean, that's what, what we're seeing, what we're seeing there is, is, is the leap into into um, we're really talking about coal um, and coal has uh, the, the, the burning of coal um, and the acceleration of the burning of coal um, around the North Atlantic and elsewhere um, uh, is the dramatic shift mm-hmm. and it's not just I mean if you look at the it, so we so what what does the historian bring to the table the historian brings to the table um, the economic history and the the population history which this climate scientist really 
desperately don't know anything yeah. about. They, mm-hmm. they really want this analysis because now they have they can see what the correlates are because they 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 are extremely good at what they do, but they don't have time to do the history part. Um, that's what we bring to the table, and a lot of what we bring to the table has to be fairly traditional economic history, and and then layered into that is you know new data that that um, people down at Oak Ridge uh, a, a National Laboratory have been able to generate in the last. Um, uh, a decade or so of an analysis of how in, of the source of emissions. Um, so I've tr- basically correlated those uh, emissions data that they've they have developed from understandings of how economies have worked and the amount of fossil fuels being burned in different different capacities. And what's very clear is that. Um, in the 1870s, as we're getting a transition, particularly, you know, I mean, the, the, if you want a specific moment in American history, it's when um, uh, uh, Andrew Carnegie fires up the Bessemer plants in Pittsburgh in 1873. Um, we move to a very cheap way to make steel, um, and uh, that involves um, huge amount of, of coal being burned, reduced to coke, and coke being used in these massive uh, systems to produce the infrastructure that we live in right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, the infrastructure that we live in and is degrading all around us um, of, of steel bridges and uh, sewer lines, you know, of uh, whatever, and steel buildings, um, Emerged and, my, and I, I, having looked at all this data, basically, you know, basically the mid 19th century was an environmental crisis in the sense of people were piling into these ramshackle cities, and um, uh, which were exploding, built out of wood, and we needed a safe city. So over the course of the late 19th century, massive industrialization to build a safe city, which has electricity, which has sewer lines, which has steel buildings, a fireproof city. Uh, and that drove, uh, required uh, massive amounts of coal burning. Um, by the turn of the century, you can you can even talk about the transition to gas, gasoline, petroleum versus coal as an environmental measure, because it actually reduced, cleaned up the atmosphere to some degree. Uh, the as you make a transition to away already in the you increase the amount of of energy BTUs uh, coming out of. Um, of coal relative to the entire economy, uh, the you know the GDPs in the economy that are producing you know, the emissions per GDP go down because you're using cleaner fuels even at the turn of the, you know even in the 1920s and 30s. Um, but clearly the whole system is getting is is, is expanding dramatically. What we also bring to the table is an analysis of economic super cycles. And if you go on the web and you look for the term. Uh, modern super cycle, it'll bring you to an analysis of the modern economy with one big super cycle expansion from the 1870s to the beginning of World War One, a contraction that runs from World War One to the end of World War Two, and then another huge super cycle expansion that leads down to uh, when I was a sophomore in college, 1973, um, and then a contraction uh, that uh, which shaped much of our adult lives. Uh, and and now we you know we are in the midst of a possibly a third super cycle expansion based on East Asia uh, and based on you know, electronics and, and uh, 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 you know, not electronics I should we say you know high tech high tech and, and biotech um, but massive production going on in Eastern Asia. Um, so each one of these expansions has produced enormous amounts of CO2 and sulfates, which have masked the effects of the CO2. So there's a, there's a very complicated story about how global warming has happened in the last hundred years, hundred last, uh, which has been that actually during these supercycle expansions, um, we put 
gigantic amounts of CO2, which lasts for a long period of time in the atmosphere, decades to centuries, and we also put up sulfates. And the sulfates last for, they're like little mini volcanoes. And so we burn coal, we burn oil, and it puts up a mask of sulfate that actually has a cooling effect regionally. So if you look at the, the Earth um, from the, the hmm. modeling, and there are actually cooler strips. One of them is actually Mid America. It's actually kind of cooler, and there's you know, and they're exactly there are three of them. One of them is Mid America out of the Atlantic, another is Europe stretching into into Russia, and another is this big smear of cooling coming out of out of China. These are the sulfate the sulfate emissions that create local cooling effects. So the Arctic is burning up, the equator is warming up, um, the the the. The sea level is rising from a variety of contexts, not just ice melting, but just simply warmer water means an expanded, uh, expanded, um, uh, volume in the oceans. Uh, so the, so the, there's all sorts of dynamics going on there with, with, um, but what's, what's dramatic is when you reduce the sulfates, uh, which create acid rain, so we kind of want to reduce the sulfates. Uh, reduce the sulfates, the Soviet Union collapses. Uh, in 1990, uh, uh, you suddenly have a spike in warming. So right now, uh, we are actually in what's called a hiatus. Warming has plateaued since about the year 2002 or so, plus or minus. And... Um, People are pointing that say, "What's going on there?" Well, what is going on there seems to be that China is putting an enormous. I mean, if you look at the emissions from China, they have simply leapt up. They were flat through the 1970s. They began to climb slightly in the, you know, significantly, but not, you know, not dramatically. Uh, and Deng Xiaoping reforms, 1970s, 80s, into the 90s, and then in 2002, they simply leap straight up and um uh and so you know if if there's a great historical moment uh one is bessemer steel in 1870s another is 2002 and the launch of the um a sudden sort of phase shift in the in the chinese economy and um uh, that may in fact be shaping a plateau in um the the, the increase in warming that had been skyrocketing in the previous 25 years uh, because so many more sulfates are in the air. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, we're, it's the problem of how to man, we are now um, in a situation where we don't just manage our households and manage our towns and cities and our countries. We have to manage the globe. And not everybody wants to do that. Not everybody can see the patterns and accepts the idea of the patterns um, that drive this analysis. But very clearly, we have shaped a we have interfered in the in the Earth system to the degree that we are responsible for um, its uh, safe management. We have to figure out ways to to, to to turn the thermostat. And one of those is to you know radically control the burning of coal. Um, there's many other things we have to worry about, but the burning of coal is very, very high uh, because that's the, the key culprit. Um, around the edges, we may be able to cut down on black soot and black, cut down on methane, um, and they, they may they may take enough percentages out to allow us to to squeak through. And that's the issue now: is how much do we how much do we contain the warming over the next century for, you know, what kind of a world do we give to our grandchildren? Uh, what kind of a world do we leave to the people who come after us? Um, you know, for, uh, I, I study American history and, and, and the, the, um, and my other life. And, and, and in the, in the past, um, people have spent a, uh, spent a lot of time worrying publicly about what will be the, what, what country shall we leave to our children? What country shall we leave to our, to our grandchildren? Well, now we have to think about what world do we leave to our children and grandchildren? And those of us who are, you know, those of you out there who are under forty, um, are uh, there's a lot of a lot of unhappies and, and 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 concern about what a mess they've inherited. And so what we have to do is we have to um, we have to break the political logjam, and that really you know is it does involve um, a a political process that involves interests. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Cheap well, energy, cheap energy is good. Cheap energy is 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 nice, and it's, it makes my life easier. And um, 
but it comes at a cost, and that yeah. cost may be beyond what we can handle. It reminds me of what uh, someone, I think they were trying to be funny, but there's an element of truth that the best way to um, uh, limit your consumption of things is not to consume <laughs> it was high impact man. Yeah. yeah, yeah. My wife's just reading this. He had, he, he had a uh, or impact man. I think. Yeah, yeah. Right. right. So anyway, thank you very much for writing the book, and thank you for putting all of this in context. It's a it's a terrific book. We've been talking with John Brooke about climate change and the course of global history, a rough journey. So, John, let me close the interview by asking you our traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? Well, I am doing a variety of things. One thing I'm doing is writing a little blog that I'm putting on gradually. It'll take uh, putting a few blogs up and, and probably doing this once every two or three weeks um, uh, on the Cambridge site to so kind of keep uh, keep um, uh, commentary on current events and my, and my book. Uh, so if you want to go there, that's will be continuing uh, text uh, text of thoughts about about uh, where we are. And but I'm also um, kind of shifting back to um, back to American history, and I'm I'm working on a a project um, since. Um, you know, slowly starting in 2010 and now more and more accelerated um, on what I consider to be the causes of the Civil War. Basically, the causes of the American Civil War um, have to be seen, you know, in a shift in northern public opinion. The South would defend slavery no matter what. So the problem is when does the North uh, suddenly, and I would suggest it is, it is a sudden process in the early 1850s, uh, change enough of the North, change its opinion to scare the South into seceding. And, um, and uh, so I, it's a very specific analysis of how culture and politics interact. So I'm trying to bridge a gap between cultural history and political history, focus on uh, the early 1850s um, and uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe and, and uh, even Stephen Foster, a songwriter, mm-hmm. um, played a key role in here. And, and uh, uh, so I'm looking, instead of having gone, having just done a project that took me into thousands and tens of thousands and millions and billions of years. Now I'm looking at months and days uh, in the early 1850s. Mm-hmm. Well, I wish you luck with that project. Uh, let me tell everyone again that we've been talking with John Brooke about his book, Climate Change and the Course of Global History, A Rough Journey, just out from Cambridge. I hope everybody has a chance to go and look at the book and perhaps buy it. I really encourage you to do that. So, John, let me thank you. Okay, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. And let me say to everyone who listens to this podcast and all the podcasts on the New Books Network, thank you very much for your support and for listening in, and I hope everybody has a great week.